Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect upon policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Colson. In this edition, we break down the political developments affecting the Korean Peninsula. In South Korea, a corruption scandal involving a close confidant to President Park Geun-hye has compelled hundreds of thousands of citizens to participate in weekend candlelight vigils, with the largest protests occurring in Seoul. Several million Koreans joined the protests, which have remained peaceful throughout. Despite outward calm, public reaction to the alleged bribery and breaches in classified information was fierce, and South Korea's parliament voted overwhelmingly to impeach Madam Park on Friday, December 9th. We asked CSIS Korea Chair and Georgetown Professor Dr. Victor Cha to help explain how we got to this point. So in many ways, I think it was the perfect storm. There were certainly misdeeds and misjudgments on the part of President Park uh, that were the immediate or specific cause for all of this. Uh, But it's in the context of broader public disenchantment with the cozy relationship between big business in South Korea and the government the absence of opportunity for um, uh, the younger generation, even educated younger generation, sluggish growth in South Korea, below 2% growth in South Korea, um, uh, a worsening North Korea situation. So I think there were many things that were going on um, that in in many ways made this a perfect storm, and it resulted in sort of this outpouring of anger at, uh, at the president um, that eventually rolled into, you know, demands for resignation and then finally the, the impeachment vote. Now that President Park has been impeached, the Korean Constitutional Court has 180 days to rule on whether the evidence justified the legislature's decision to impeach the president. Prime Minister Wong Kyo-an is standing in as acting president. Dr. Cha runs down the procedure following Park's impeachment. So the procedure for the court is pretty straightforward. After the vote by the legislature, the court has 180 days to rule on whether uh, the vote is con- the motion is constitutional or not. This court is uh, mostly conservative judges, uh, and depending on how they rule, if they rule that if they uphold the motion, she will be impeached, and then there is a 60-day snap election that follows. Um, It's impossible to say if they will use the full six months to make their decision. Um, The only case that we have in recent memory is in 2004, where the court had to rule on an impeachment um, of President Noh Myung, and it took them two months to decide that the motion was not constitutional, and President Noh was not impeached as a result of that. So we'll just have to see. Um, There are other sort of complications as we go forward because some members of the court rotate off uh, the court and they're not likely to be replaced in their current situation. So we'll we'll have to see. I think we're essentially talking about a six-month time frame from now on before this all gets resolved. I mean, in terms of the, you know, the the impeachment vote has basically made her uh, incapable of carrying out her duties as the president. These, as you said, fall to the prime minister. And I think what that means in practice on a day-to-day level is that really the professional bureaucracies take over pol- the policymaking apparatus in government because there really isn't a politician uh, at the top of it all. And Korea you know, is, has a very strong presidency uh, making decisions. I don't think the prime minister as a caretaker chief executive is going to initiate any new changes in policy. And it really all then devolves to the professionals 
whether it's in the finance ministries, the foreign ministries, to carry out the day-to-day operate the Blue House to carry out the day-to-day operations of government. So in that sense, um, I don't really expect to see many changes or uh, major uh, discontinuities in in Korean foreign policy, economic policy, anything during this period. And what about the Korean opposition parties? Can they capitalize in upcoming elections? I certainly think they're going to try uh, to do that. Um, I think all of the parties, I'm speaking very sort of practically and even cynically, all the parties uh, have an interest in having at least six months to prepare for a snap election if, in fact, the court votes to impeach her. Um, None of them really has a strong interest in seeing this thing play out quickly. Uh, because they're not ready for an election. You know, everybody was expecting an election in December of 2017. Um, no one was expecting one uh, sooner than that. And even sort of May, June is cutting it close for them when you think about you know, how you have to put together a candidacy, put together the ground game and the provinces and things. You know, they need time to do that. So in that sense, I think um, the, the opposition parties are, have probably already have started mobile as soon as the vote happened. They've all started mobilizing. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. I'm not really sure what the future of the Senuri party is, the conservative ruling party, given that they were badly split in the vote. Um, for uh, the impeachment of Park. About half of them voted for it, half of them voted against it. You have the additional variable of UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and whether he will choose to enter the race. And then you have a whole series of folks on the progressive side that all think they have a shot at this. Um, So it's not clear how it's all going to play out uh, at the moment. Turning to security developments and U.S. interests, As a candidate, Donald Trump articulated concerns about U.S. alliances during the campaign, both questioning their value to the United States, along with discussing the possibility of permitting South Korea to develop its own nuclear weapons. We asked Dr. Cha what signposts in U.S.-ROK relations we should watch during a Trump presidency. A couple of observations. Um, First is that I think President-elect Trump's comments about, you know, Japan or Korea going nuclear or you know, if allies don't pay 100%, we're walking, these sorts of things. I don't think they should be taken literally. I think what they essentially exude is a mentality that says nobody should take anything for granted, right? That whether it's relationships with our allies or with competitors or even adversaries, that, you know, he is, he's a new president. He comes from outside. He prides himself on being different and not doing the same old thing. I think all of these comments reflect a general attitude, at least going in, that nobody should take anything for granted. All the traditional equities or liabilities that we see um, in all of our relationships should not be taken for granted. That he, I think, is essentially signaling a bottom-up look on all of these, all of these sorts of issues. Now, having said that, I think he's been pretty clear about uh, allies paying more. Uh, I think part of his mindset is one in which there's a sense that the United States has been too generous in terms of its international commitments at the expense of uh, prosperity and um, employment at home. So I think there will be a strong economic uh, aspect to how he looks at some of these relationships. In the case of South Korea, the first signpost 
um, will be the uh, the burden sharing agreement, the special measures agreement between the two countries, which basically delineates how much South Korea pays for the costs of stationing U.S. forces on the Korean Peninsula. This agreement is up for re renewal in 2018, which means a negotiation happens in 2017. And it will be arguably one of the first issues that a new um, State Department and a new Trump administration are going to have to deal with when it comes to Korea. So we'll see. I think we'll see a lot from that negotiations how hard they are going to press on this question of allies paying a lot more, even 100%, whatever it might be. I think that will be one of the first first signposts. And then after that, the following year is Japan Special Measures Agreement. That, that will be the next negotiation. So, so I think those will be some two of the immediate signposts. While all this is going on, as Victor mentioned, the North Korean threat to the South remains, yet we haven't seen provocations from Kim Jong-un since two medium-range ballistic missile tests in October. Is that surprising? How should the Trump administration approach the DPRK threat? It is not surprising uh, to me that North Korea has been relatively quiet, largely because if they had done any provocations during this crisis involving President Park, they would have just given her a better opportunity to get out of the crisis. So I think it was a very deliberate effort by North Korea not to do anything while this whole crisis played out. It's actually very interesting to me that the day after the impeachment vote in South Korea, we have these stories about a North Korean military exercise where they essentially attacked the South Korean Blue House, the equivalent of the U.S. White House. In that sense, it's almost predictable that they were going to do something of that nature, but only after President Park was impeached. Um, we have done uh, data analysis at CSIS on our Beyond Parallel website where um, we see North Korea deliberately targeting U.S. elections uh, as, area, as, as time windows in which they want to carry out provocations. So we actually predicted before the U.S. election um, that North Korea within, you know, essentially within about a little over three weeks of the U.S. election that they would do some provocations. And they did. You mentioned the two MRBM tests that came in October before the election. And again, the only reason they haven't done anything three to three and a half weeks after the U.S. election was because of what was happening in, in South Korea. So uh, according to our analysis, I think it's very likely that North Korea will, will undertake some sort of provocation as we get closer to the inauguration of President-elect Trump. Um, January 8th is uh, uh, the North Korean leader's birthday. So it's entirely possible they could do something uh, then as well. So um, the fact that they have been quiet uh, over the, you know, since the election to me is less an indication of North Korean intentions to take a diplomatic track and more of an indication of their watching South Korean politics. And now that that, in a sense, that vote has already been done. I mean, it's really out of the hands now of the politicians and the people. It's in the hands of the court. North Korea now feels free to do what it wants on the provocation cycle side. We often forget the immense strain that the North's saber-rattling and totalitarian system place on its citizens. What is the current humanitarian situation for ordinary people living in North Korea? The first thing we should say whenever we start this discussion is that uh, North Korea is the worst human rights 
disaster in modern history. Um, and it has been ongoing for 50 years. Uh, and um, it is only recently, within the last two years, gotten the attention of the international community, largely as a result of the UN Commission of Inquiry report in 2014 that documented the extent of human rights abuses in North Korea and that also recommended that the leadership of North Korea responsible for these abuses be taken to the International Criminal Court for Crimes Against Humanity, which is about the strongest language that the UN um, can use. At CSIS, we've been trying to do our little part of trying to better understand what the situation is on the ground in North Korea uh, by trying to talk to people. I mean, we've been working with different groups to try to actually, I would not say survey, but try to ask questions of the North Korean people and what's important of them. And we've publicized these and put up some of these studies on the Beyond Parallel um, website. Just to give an example, um, in some of this work that we've done, 100% uh, of the North Koreans that we talked to said that the public distribution system, the ration system in North Korea does not work. They do not rely on it for their livelihood. And for a command economy like North Korea, that's a pretty big statement. Right? The other is that um, the um, North Korean people feel the most animosity towards the government when they undertake actions that try to undercut market activities or entrepreneurial activities. So, and those two, if you can see, they go, those two observations go hand in hand. Um, this is a command economy system that doesn't work. The people don't rely on government rations for their livelihood. They rely on the market, markets that they have created, markets that the government has created. And, uh, but anytime the government tries to undercut that market, close markets early, try to take whatever savings that North Korean people have made out of their pockets because they feel that that is threatening to the regime's control, that's when the people get the most upset. So these and a number of other findings, I think, um, offer an interesting and uh, unique um, window into how the average citizen in North Korea is living. And it is, um, you know, it's something that we hope that we can continue to do. Some people who are familiar with this will say, well, we already knew that because defectors, you know, there are 30,000 defectors in South Korea. There are about 200 to 300 in the United States. When those people are interviewed, they say all the same things. They say the ration system doesn't work and we love the markets and we don't like it when the government does that. But I think the key point there is you would expect defectors to say that because they have voted with their feet already. So they've, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get an understanding how people who chose to stay in the country feel about those things. And the fact that they have the same feelings as the people who voted with their feet, I think is a very important finding uh, about the, the state of the human situation inside the country. To understand the future on the Korean Peninsula, one of the best ways may be to look back. We asked Dr. Cha to draw on some findings of his new book, Power Play, to shed light on the future direction of the USROK alliance. Dr. Cha has researched and written about post-World War II diplomacy in Asia and U.S. strategic decision-making early on in the Cold War. The USROK alliance has been around for more than 60 years. Young people take it for granted. But it wasn't always the order of things. 
Why did the Eisenhower administration decide bilateral alliances in Asia were the best framework for relations at the time? Well, thanks for the question and for the free advertisement for the book. Yeah, it's a book that I wrote uh, over many years, looking at lots of archives about how the United States chose to build the alliance network that it built in East Asia. Um, and in a way that's very different from the way uh, institution, security institutions were built in Europe. Um, and, uh, and so I look at Korea, Japan, Taiwan. Uh, I talk a little bit about Germany as well in the book uh, and um, uh, Spain, U.S. Uh, relations with Spain in the, in, in the, during the Franco regime. So there are a variety of other cases. But in the case of Korea, I think the, the United States, in many ways, our hand was forced when the North Koreans invaded South Korea in June of 1950. Prior to that, um, the United States was actually not interested in uh, maintaining a strategic stake on the Asian mainland. And that Asian mainland included the Korean Peninsula as well as Taiwan. And so actually going into the Christmas of 1949, the U.S. government pretty much had decided that they were going to um, withdraw from Korea and then eventually allow uh, Chiang Kai-shek and his refuge on Taiwan to sort of slowly um, uh, uh, stop providing assistance, despite the fact that the Republicans were very mad that uh, the Democrats had lost China in the revolution. Um, but then after June of 1950, that all changed uh, because uh, the invasion was unexpected. It was an all-out armored invasion, which really upset Harry Truman. Um, and the decision was made essentially to do a 180 in our policy and to commit to defending the peninsula. So that was a commitment to defend the peninsula, not because we had any sort of strategic value in Korea, or I'm sorry, we, that we had any intrinsic value in Korea. It was entirely strategic just to prevent um, uh, the so-called domino theory. Um, the alliance framework largely came out of a desire, on the one hand, to provide a security commitment to Korea after the armistice, ending the Korean War, at least ending the hostilities, but not to provide a blank check so that a, North, that a leader in South Korea that still wanted to prosecute hostilities against the North and go all the way up to the China border, um, not to give him a blank check to feel like he could continue to try to retake the northern part of the peninsula, which would then have entrapped the United States in another major war, which we didn't want to be in because of Europe, because we just didn't want to be in another war, and we certainly didn't want to have to use nuclear weapons again in Asia. And so I think in the end, the, the so this was the dilemma. How do you provide security without providing a blank check? And I think in the end, the answer was you provide security, but you exert control. And the best way to exert control was not through some sort of, you know, 15 members at the table uh, by committee making decisions about the U.S.-Korea alliance, but it was a bilateral relationship. Uh, uh, that was the best way to provide that security, but at the same time exert control so that Korea would not do anything to entrap the United States in another war with China um, 
again, because we didn't want to be in another war and also because we were worried that it was all a distraction from the Europe front. And so that's how the bilateral framework emerged, and it was how it was the same model that was used for Taiwan and in, and in, in Japan. Has that decision been validated as we move towards the third decade of the 21st century? So I certainly don't think we worry anymore like we did back then about Sungman Ri or Chiang Kai-shek trying to pull us into another war with, uh, with China. But I think the, the bilateral framework has made it's the deepest imprint in terms of the regional architecture of Asia. Um, the bilateral alliances are no longer bilateral. Uh, we have U.S.-Japan-Australia trilateral. We have U.S.-Japan-Korea trilateral. We have the Quad, U.S.-Japan-Australia-India. So there are many other permutations, uh, networking of the alliances, you might say, that have really emerged after the end of the Cold War. And these things, I think, have contributed greatly to the public goods of, um, in terms of stability of markets, disaster assistance, global health, uh, sea lanes of communication. It's, you know, they provide a lot of public goods. So I think there is, even though these alliances were forged in the heat of the Cold War, I think there is a lot that these alliances can produce, have produced and can produce going forward because, you know, they're very unique. These relationships started out as sort of the quintessential realist military utilitarian relationship. We came together because of a common enemy. Um, but they have all evolved to becoming relationships between um, advanced industrialized democracies that have very similar agendas around the world, whether you're talking about, as I said, whether you're talking about development assistance in Africa to climate change to, um, uh, um, to global health pandemics, very similar agendas around the world. And uh, I think that what these alliances have done is they've only amplified U.S. power. Um, they are not resource extractors from the United States, but they have amplified U.S. power, and they have been a big part of what makes U.S. hegemony so um, uh, unique in world history compared to other forms of uh, uh, preeminence by lead powers in the system. With Kim Jong-un's birthday on January 8th, Trump's inauguration on January 20th, and the ongoing turmoil in South Korean politics, 2017 is shaping up to be an unpredictable year on the Korean Peninsula. Here at CSIS, we'll be watching. Thanks to Dr. Victor Cha for his analysis of developments on the Korean Peninsula and USROK relations. To learn more about North Korea, visit CSIS's Beyond Parallel Project website. That's our show. The audio for this podcast was edited by Francis Berkham. This podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. To learn more, visit our new look CSIS.org and Cogitasia.com. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, RSS, or email on CSIS.org. Stop by our updated Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative site for groundbreaking analysis in Maritime Asia, and check out our new Reconnecting Asia site. Also, be sure to listen to our latest China Power podcast on China's new foreign NGO law. I'm Will Colson. Thanks for listening.